Hello, this is the Feed the Ball podcast, and I'm your host, Derek Duncan. For episode 86, my guest is golf designer Blake Conant. Any way you cut it, golf architects are tradespeople who combine a wide variety of skills and professions during the design and construction of their courses. Even as they contract out the installation of utilities like irrigation, piping, cart paths, and landscaping, they must have technical proficiency in drainage, soils, turf, budgets, the math of balancing cuts and fills, and a dozen other tasks, not to mention an aptitude for client relations, membership reassurance, and the personality needed to get the job in the first place. In some sense, this is what golf architecture is, a complex, months-long operation of timing, engineering, and labor. At the core of it, however, what makes this sprawling, multifaceted mousetrap come to life is a very unique, sensitive, and difficult-to-define pressure plate known loosely as creativity. Every one of the aforementioned steps can be executed perfectly, but if the spark of design creativity is missing, the entire endeavor will fall flat and be destined to be merely just another place to play golf. The gift of being able to ignite passion, to trigger the imagination, and to reveal something new is rare, but when it is present, the course can become not just a place to play, but a place to go to play, its own object of desire. There are very few examples of a fast rise to the top in today's golf architecture. In most cases, years and years, and decades most likely, are required before a designer gets a breakout project, if one ever comes. Blake Conant's rapid rise in the profession has been powered in part by a searching curiosity and keen aptitude for finding the magic in the ingredients of creativity. In just 10 years, he's progressed from odd jobs to shaper, to consultant, to co-designer of one of the most original new designs in the country, the recently opened Old Barnwell near Aiken, South Carolina, built in conjunction with Brian Schneider. Conan started working early on projects for Tom Doak's Renaissance Golf Design and has been on the job for Doak at places as far-flung as Dismal River in his home state of Nebraska, Bel Air Country Club in Los Angeles, the National Golf Club in Australia, and St. Patrick's Links in Ireland. It was at these sites that he developed deep relationships with Doak's associates, Eric Iverson, Don Plasic, Brian Slonick, and in particular Schneider, who subsequently brought Conan on to help him shape at places like Hollywood in New Jersey and Lanark in Philadelphia. As you'll hear in this discussion, Conan thinks like an artist, because he is. He holds an undergraduate degree in painting from the University of Montana. In that vein, he searches for design inspiration wherever he can find it, no matter how seemingly unrelated it might be to golf. That creativity is on vivid display in the ground and in the forms occurring throughout Old Barnwell, and we spend a fair share of time exploring where these types of ideas came from and the various ways golf design mirrors other kinds of art and expression. Conant's partnership with Brian Schneider is, at the moment, one of the most intriguing in the profession, one that has the capability of taking architecture in any number of unexplored directions. Once players and potential developers and investors see Old Barnwell, it seems likely that more new builds and similar opportunities will be coming their way. It would be unthinkable for there not to be. Let's get into the talk. Here's Blake Conant on art, creativity, Old Barnwell, and working with Doak, Schneider, and their colleagues. Did you watch any of the Ryder Cup? 
It did. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, 19 month old. We're up, uh, we're up early enough for some coffee golf anyway. And, um, yeah, it was nice to, I think, I think I joined in like right as the second round, the afternoon matches were teeing off, you know? Um, yeah, I think otherwise you'd have to get up at 2 a.m. to catch the, the early rounds. Yeah. It was always demoralizing. You know, it felt like, oh, yeah, we got swept in the, the morning matches, but we're trying to grind and hang on for the afternoon. I know. What did you think of the golf course? It seemed like it seemed really good for what they were going for, you know? feel like it provided a ton of drama. I think I, I think I heard somewhere it's only like 6,500 yards. Um, and I don't know if it's at elevation or if it's higher up, but it's like, I don't remember once caring like what the yardage was, you know, I think that's just the beautiful thing of the Ryder cup. You just don't. Yeah. You just don't care. Okay. This guy has this, you know, this much left of the hole or he's this far from the pin and, the holes themselves created a lot of drama. Um, yeah, I think but it, it'd be hard not to call it a success, right? I agree with you. I think that that golf course was set up pretty intelligently for match play. They designed, you know, they redesigned it a few years ago, knowing that the Ryder Cup was going to be held there. And yeah, the holes provided everything you'd want them to in a head-to-head setting. You know, as a, as a stroke play golf course, it's probably a lot less compelling, but in you know, when you get th- those players and you have some of those those corners to cut, they can try to take it over the bunkers and um, some actually some pretty interesting pin positions on the greens with those tiers and, and little shelves that they they and, and fall offs around the greens. So it, it did kind of create a lot of tension in each round. Even though you know, I don't think that I would probably go out of my way to want to play that golf course myself. It was great for that for the Ryder Cup, just as you said. Yeah, and and just the amphitheater, like you know routing it so it could move crowds through and setting up holes to have amphitheaters and, you know, lots of, lots of square footage for people to sit and see golf. Like all that was really well done and really well thought out. Indeed. Indeed. You know, I guess let's just jump right into it. I'm, I want to start off by talking about old Barnwell, uh, you know, and I guess maybe the first thing that I'll ask you about old Barnwell and, and what kind of we could have gone a different direction, but when you said amphitheater, that kind of triggered me to old Barnwell, which a lot of the center of the course sits in this basin. And there's almost like this amphitheater setting around this basin. And you have these views across, across the golf course. And, and that, that's kind of what jumped to my mind when you said amphitheater, but really I wanted to know from you, what was it like being along with Brian Schneider the the lead architect in this project you know you now you it's your golf course it's your design you have say versus shaping and working for other designers on their golf courses and i'm i'm sure you had a tremendous amount of of freedom to to shape things the way that you wanted but that was always going to get edited and it was always going to be ultimately somebody else's final call now you're in the director's seat how is that experience different than what you used to in the past yeah, Brian and I, we talked a lot about that, actually. Um, you know, we were were always used to having Tom as a safety net or, you know, the final editor. He has the final say on if something's too severe, too soft, or wants to change. Um, and so, you know, for me, I don't want to speak for Brian, but just in our conversations, like Tom was always sort of in the back of our head with some stuff that we're like, eh, this is maybe borderline, like 
what would Tom say? You know? Um, and sometimes it's like, sometimes it's like, well, let's, let's disregard that. And sometimes it's, you know, it's like, yeah, he probably would say it's six inches too high and does it need to be six inches too high? You know, I feel like the ninth green is a good example. I, I had it a foot higher than what it currently is. And I think Brian came around one day and was just like, you know, but like, it's cool up there. It's really hard. If it was a foot lower, would any of the golf change? And it's like, yeah, probably not. And you're probably going to get a, a little less ping pong that way. And it's like, that's, I think we found a good sweet spot there, but, but a lot of it is just, it's that it's like, you know, you we're still willing to kind of take a free swing and go for it. And, and both Brian and my, you know, both our mentalities is you'd rather overbuild or overshape it than melt it down. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to turn the volume down than it is to turn the volume up during the editing process. Um, so we both work that way anyway, but then just having to be, you know, no safety net with Tom having to be the ones to make the final decision. Um, a lot of that was just like really grinding through thinking, you know, not just wanting to like, Oh, this is the coolest, biggest, boldest thing ever. It's like, what's, how does it work with everything else? How does it work as a set? You know, to, does it need to be this? Does it need to be that? Does it need to be more? Um, so that was kind of the biggest thing of just like, yep, there's nobody here to nobody here to take the reins from you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Was that how did that feel? I liked it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, that's where it, it worked out really well, uh, designing with Brian and working with Brian. And honestly, like Gray and Andre, the two um young guys who are with us throughout the entire project, they, they were big in that as well. It was like, you know, it, it was collaborating with one another, bouncing, you know, being able to share like a, a concern with somebody freely and, and not having to, to bear the brunt of that all on your shoulders. I, I actually think, you know, turned out, it turned out better because of the collaboration. Um, and, you know, Brian and I have, we worked together for 10 or 12 years. So we, we know how, we know how each other work. Um, this was the first project where Brian wasn't my boss, you know, but he's also, he's given me so much creative freedom on previous projects, you know, working on restorations or renovations or new builds. Um, so we've always had sort of a collaborative relationship and so it was an easy transition into this project to just continue collaborating and talking through stuff, you know, rarely do you get it right the first time, but definitely having him to bounce things off, um, felt a little bit better. And I think the work turned out better for it, you know, we'll get into the design in a little bit more detail, but what you just said makes me ask this question. Now that you mentioned that, you know, you'd worked with Brian for a long time and, and, you know, he had always sort of been your overseeing your work as, as Tom oversaw his, and it was kind of a chain down. Now you've worked together, you're co-designers, you built this course together equally. Can you go back to a situation where he's your boss again? Oh yeah, totally. Um, you know, cause we're both, it, it's not like we've both decided to never work with Tom again. It's like, you know, we were we both went up to Pinehurst to help on that job. Um, and Angela Moser was running that job. So Angela was our boss, you know, there it's like, Hey, would you guys 
work on the sixth green or the fifth green. Um, and I, I think, I just think that's the cool thing about Renaissance golf and Tom and kind of the culture that, you know, he created a while ago and is passing down to us is just, you know, it's more about collaborating and creative freedom and Hey, one, you know, one person may have the final decision on this gig, but on the next gig, it's like Eric's running the job or Angela's running the job. So, you know, she's got it. She's the one there every day or, or he's the one there every day that needs to like take the reins and uh, make the final decision. But um, yeah, you know, we, I, I don't think Brian and I have that, have an ego problem where it's like the next time around, if, if his name is on it and I'm helping him, um, I don't think our process is going to change that much. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect how we work. It's just kind of, you know, who's, um, yeah, whose name's on the thing. This is, however, a for you in your career, a big step in a way, you know, to, to be the, the lead co-designer on a brand new original golf course. First of all, there aren't that many new courses being built more so now than there were three, four or five years ago. But still, in the, in the big picture, these are hard jobs to get. Does it make it harder for you to go uh, back to, into a situation where, you know, you're just shaping. I, I would assume that once you get a taste of, of life in the big leagues, it's, you want to stay there and you want to continue to get original projects or, or have, uh, or, or be, be the, the quote unquote boss on any future projects that you're on. How does it make you feel about your career going forward? You know, obviously the chance to work with and learn from Tom is something that you know, if my schedule allows and he needs help, like I'm not going to deny myself the opportunity to work with somebody who's as good as there is, who's ever done it. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, Tom's still getting the best pieces of land. The projects are really fun. There's always good people around. So, you know, if our schedules align and there's opportunities to work on things that he's doing, um, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, you know, as far as like work going forward, you know, I've got, um, you know, I've got a few consulting clients. There's, um, you know, the phone rings a little bit more with old Barnwell, but I always heard, you know, Tom always said after Pacific Dunes, he's like, I'm assuming three years from now is when it'll actually like determine if I get more phone calls for this course or if nobody wants to call me again. You know what I mean? So I think, just because he Brian thinks there's some kind of like, take that, there's some kind of like delay, there's some kind of delay in in the reaction that that basically golfers and potential developers it takes that much time for them to soak up and see if the world approves of what what the designer built. Yeah, and that's you know, I think when he said that it was pre Twitter, pre social media, pre you know, pre all that. Right. So maybe it did take a little more time to get the word out and more time, honestly, for people to get up to Bannon, Oregon. But, um, you know, I, I don't think Brian and I have any, like, we're not in a rush to, you know, sign up five new projects if they came along or, um, anything like that. It's like, man, old Barnwell, we had a lot of fun doing it. We would love to do something like that again. Um, and we, you know, we, we have plans for another golf course at old Barnwell and a kid's course. So there'll be opportunities to just continue working there and making that place better, which, you know, the, the, the vibe and the culture we had there 
for the past year and a half has been great. So yeah, if Nick wants to build a hundred golf courses at old Bartle, I'd, I'd be happy doing that the rest of my life. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of the crux of it, I guess, is just like you get into, you get far enough into this business of golf architecture and building golf courses to kind of figure out what you want to get out of it. You know, it, at some point it's like, okay, I need to make, it's like every, everybody has their nut that they need to make to support their family or to support the lifestyle that they want, whatever it is. Um, and you know, we're not like, so, so you have to get that out of it. But from there it's, it's like, well, do I really want to be taking jobs that don't provide the creative freedom? Like what I'm really seeking is an outlet for creativity, you know, um, wherever that may be. I, I, cause I think ultimately what I've determined is like, man, I've really, you know, the sales part, like that doesn't, that doesn't turn me on about this part, that world, that, that part of the world of golf architecture. It's, it's the building things. It's, it's creating things. It's like implementing ideas. That's, that's the really fun part. So if I can pursue opportunities that allow me to do that, um, you know, in whatever form that be working, working for, or doing it on my own or collaborating with others, like, however that manifests itself. I, I think those are the opportunities that I'd like to pursue. It's funny to hear you say that. I get the impression, and I don't think I'm wrong, is that many people in this business, and especially, you know, maybe this is more true in the past, were in, in the business because they liked the sales aspect of it. They liked the, the client relation. They liked to network. You know, they liked the, the feedback that it got to hang out with, you know, millionaires or billionaires or something. And, and the designing of the golf course, the building, the construction was perhaps less interesting to them. Uh, and I'm sure there are, there are people who are in your profession I know there are people who are who are really good at both sides and and probably enjoy both sides, but uh, it does seem like there's it's more profitable and more sustainable now in golf design. The way golf courses are being built and in the places that they're being built is if people are like you and you're in it for the 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 building, the construction, the creativity side of it. Is that is that a sense that you get? Yeah, and you know I. I don't blame anybody or like it, it doesn't make me more pure or better because I like doing the, the, the creative side of it is what I get the most out of it. You know, there's, there are some people that are, that are just really good at the sales side and, and that's what they enjoy out of it. And they, you know, they get into golf because they love golf too. Um, it's just, where do you, what are you passionate about? You know, and the stuff that I'm passionate about is just the, building it and implementing it. Um, and it's like, you know, I've, I had a painting or I've got a painting degree. Um, so I used to paint a lot and that used to be a huge creative outlet for me. And then, you know, getting into golf, what I found is like, I don't paint as much anymore and I kind of wish I did, but what's, what's filling my cup is the ability to build stuff. You know, that's what's still like, if I wasn't doing that, if I was just drawing plans and CAD and like focusing on the sales side of golf architecture, I would probably have a painting studio or something, you know, like there's just a, a need for me to get that out and building golf courses does that. And I happen to really enjoy the design side and, you know, all this other stuff, but what really fills my cup is that part of it. 
how do you grade yourself as a salesman, somebody who has to go into a, in front of a committee and, and sell your services or your vision for their golf course? How is that going? It's, you know, it's actually going well. Cause I don't think, um, I put too much pressure on myself. I, <laughs> I was told, uh, at one point I was told like, Blake, you know, you've really got soft power. Um, and I didn't know whether to make that as a backhanded compliment. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't elaborate much. Um, but I, you know, I, I think one of the things that I, I, you know, I'm just genuine and I talk to people in a genuine way most of the time. And it's not like if I feel like I'm bad at it because I'm not selling them something and people may actually respond well to that. But like last night, you know, I've got a, a consulting client um, up in Connecticut, in Norwalk, called Shorehaven Golf Club. They're right on the marsh. Um, it's an old Willie Park and Robert White course. And, you know, we just had to do a presentation to um, 60 or 70 members for, you know, the plan we're proposing that they're going to vote on next month. Um, and that went really well. You know, it's like I got I probably did 100 presentations during grad school and, um, you know, talking in front of crowds is something that like I'm used to and comfortable with. So, so that part I think goes really well. Um, being able to explain ideas goes really well, but yeah, I'd probably always grade myself lower than maybe what it actually is, but I'm okay with that. I think it's like any relationship. It's all about chemistry. You know, you, you can meet some people and you know, you just don't click with them, whether it's in a conversation or a job interview um, and other people for whatever reason, you know, you might stand in front of a certain group of, of, of board members and you just hit it off, you know, so you're not going to win every one of those, those meetings, right? You're going to, you just have to find enough of them to keep you busy and find enough of those people that you click with. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the key is I, I never want to be in a position to, to take work because man, I'm, you know, I'm, I have to, because I've got to support my family or do this. It's like, I can live lean, you know, I'm already on the road, which makes me not happy being away from family. Like if I've got to be on the road doing something I don't want to do that isn't, you know, largely creative, then like, why would I do that and be away from my family? Like I'd rather we just live poor for a couple of months until a job that I really want, you know, comes along. And that's, you know, that's one of the things of like, Eric Iverson taught me that he's like, just, just figure out what you need to be happy at home. And then you're always like, you kind of got the moral high ground, you know? And if there are people that are offering you a job, but you know, you're not going to get along with them. Like you can say no too. like, they, they can fire you or they don't have to hire you, but you don't always have to say yes. Um, and so just being in, you know, being in that position to like be comfortable at home and, you know, when I'm on the road and away from my family, I'm doing something that I really want to do. When you and Brian first got to Old Barnwell and saw that site, which I think is a is a good site, it's uh, you know the soils were nice and, and workable. It's not a great site, but it, div- it definitely had things that you could work with and larger movements that you could play off of. Did you once you kind of got used to it and, and walked it and got a feel? Did you start off with a concept or, or a vision of Old Barnwell and an idea of, of the aesthetic or the the tone of the golf course that you wanted how, how do you get into that that design process uh, you know and I guess the question is do you kind of start off with a somewhat of an idea of what you're going for or or do you just take it step by step and let it slowly reveal itself 
Probably the latter. I'm trying to think back. You know, Brian was the first person to see the site. I can't remember. Um, he and Nick went down. I can't remember what I was doing, but we had, we'd gone down a couple times and looked at sites with Nick. Um, Brian saw one with him that was really good, but it was actually, it turns out these tree companies, like they just sort of trade horses. So if you own a, if you own a, a, a tree site or a tree farm for more than 10 years, something happens with it tax wise. So like we had a site that I think Nick was ready to pull the trigger on. And it was like, actually it's not for sale. Like it says it's for sale, but it's not. Um, and so then they went down and saw this site for old Barnwell and Brian just called me immediately while they were out there. And he's like, he's like, I'm just going to tell Nick that this is like, this is the one, I mean, and I could just tell in his voice, you know, that it, we'd both seen the topo map. We'd, we'd both like talked about it before either of us went and knew it was, had the potential to be pretty good. But when he stood out there, you know, at that point it was just trusting Brian of like, yep, the topo looks good. If you think it's just like stunning enough to call me while you're right here, then let's go for it. And I think from there you start to, you know, the piece of land probably reminds you immediately of a few courses that you've seen. Um, you know, for us, that was sort of the Heathy golf courses uh, around London, some of that landscape where it's like bigger plateaus that can fit a few holes. And then, you know, a big tumbling ravine that you've got to get down to. And then the trouble is finding your way to get back up and out of it. And then part of it is like you said, it's just, you know, okay, what's the routing actually going to be and what kind of golf holes are we going to have? And, you know, then that may determine the style. Um, you know, the hard part is too, it's like, well, yeah, the ground reminds us the ground, the ground reminds us of Heathland, but the climate in no way is the same. So yeah. can we, you know, can we pull that off? How do we pull that off? You know? And, and then you're just, it's like John Lavelle who started as our director of agronomy and, and Chase Watson, who's now the director of agronomy, John's still there as the GM, you know, those two are great because they're so used to warm season turf and, you know, how to create texture. What can we work with? What can we can't, you know, what can't we like, Hey, this thing looks really good, but it's just going to be out of control and there's no way we can maintain it if it gets hit with irrigation. So all that stuff, I, you know, they're there during construction as we're building it. So it's like, okay, we, we know we can build a feature here. That's going to be grasped this way and they're going to be able to maintain it, you know, in X way. So that stuff really helps that collaboration and just, um, sort of like holistically approaching building the golf course, you know? So, you know, Heathlands, you mentioned, you know, those London area courses was an inspiration, but, and I, and I get that, I definitely get that feeling at certain elements of the course and at certain places. But I think what really struck me overall about the golf course was, and it's hard, I think this is really, really hard to do without going overboard and, and showing your ass, but like every, so many of the holes, like just felt fresh. They felt very unique and not tied back to anything. You might get a sense of, the, the bunkers reminding me, I, I was getting like, you know, some, some garden city or, or Oakmont kind of feel and, and some of the bunkering and, and some of the textures that you see with the, with the, the grasses and, and the, the things kind of growing up out of the ground in, in the sand, but the designs of the holes felt, felt very fresh and, you know, it, and it's a very hard thing to do. Can you comment about certain elements or, or specifically design things that, 
when you're out in the field and it's just sand and you're working on a concept, do uh, certain holes come to mind? You mentioned uh, to me as we were texting that uh, – the tenth hole, which is a, a really one, one, I think it might be my favorite hole in the golf course. It's one of the flattest golf holes on the property, and it kind of bends left, and you can't see this bunker triage from the tee. But you get up close, and it's it's this this strand of bunkers that works diagonally across the fairway, and they roll down and are subset below the surface of the fairway. That's why you can't see them. They continue up all the way to the left. And you mentioned this hole, which. Uh, is on a very flat piece of land. You, you, you were thinking maybe it, it might have uh, elements of five at Marion or thirteen at Pine Valley. So, are, are are you consciously thinking about things like that as you're going to different parts of the properties? Do you connect things back to existing holes, or or are are sometimes there's just no thought and you're just kind of creating something as you as you develop it? Yeah, no, you nailed it. It's um, you know we're always there's, there's always some inspiration. Um, maybe it's an amalgamation of a few golf holes. You know, we, we loved the way the green site set up sort of like the fifth at Marion of just a steep right to left slope. You know, the more on five at Marion, the more you hug that Creek on the left, the, the better approach angle you've got. Um, and one of the, you know, 13 at Pine Valley is it, it sort of does that as well, but it, it introduces this, kind of cross bunkering in the fairway. Um, so the further you want to drive, the more you're forced to go up the right, which gives you a worse angle into the green, um, which we kind of like the strategy of that, of giving people the opportunity, Hey, if you want to hit less than driver to be more up the left and a better, better angle into the screen, you can do that. Or you can bomb it as far up you want as the right and, you know, have a worse angle in. Um, and then stylistically it's, you know, we don't have the topography of Pine Valley. We don't have the Creek of, of, you know, at Marion. Um, so maybe some bunkering like myopia hunt would be cool there. You know, like you said, the land's pretty gentle, you know, it's got, it's probably got 10 or 15 feet of elevation change. It's not dead flat. It's, it's enough to give you like a 6% slope at the green, but it's not enough to like flash a big bunker into, um, and so, yeah, sunken bunkers work really well there. You know, the other thing is like our Brian built the fifth green and he was thinking in his head of if it's just the mirror version of 16 at Pine Valley. And I guess he went and played Pine Valley last month and he's like, man, that looks nothing like the 16, the mm. 16th green at Pine Valley. So <laughs> maybe we're, maybe things look fresh because we have such horrible memories right. that we're we're just remembering things wrong. Um, That's kind of a beautiful thing though. You know, you think you're using something as inspiration, but nobody in the world can tell that you are. Yeah. Cause you're, you, cause you're so bad at, which is kind of the key, right? I mean, no, that's, it goes back uh, yeah, to this whole concept. Yeah. It goes back to this whole concept of, of originality or inspiration versus, you know, being derivative to being directly derivative of an idea, which I, I kind of wanted that. That's kind of where I'm going with this is there's, even though there are, there might be design inspiration buried into the, the, the texture and the, and the skeleton of these holes, it's not obvious. Yeah. And that's, you know, like the ninth hole, we, nobody ever talks about the first hole at North Barrick. Um, and one of the features that both Brian and I really like is that big shell, you know, where you either need to, you either need to hit driver and try to get past it, or you need to lay up 
to 220, and then you've got kind of an awkward pitch in. And so sometimes things can just, it's not like wanting to copy a hole. It's just, hey, this we like how this particular feature works on this hole. We kind of have land that we could do something like that. And, and then some of it's just a product of, well, Andre says he needs dirt to build the 13 T the 13th <laughs> T that's really close to nine. So yeah, let's go for it. Let's just start hogging dirt out of here. Kind of in this general area, get him enough dirt to build the T's and then we'll see where we're at, you know? So then you're, you're like, you're not far enough along that you can cut the cord on a bad idea, but you're getting a semblance of will this work or not. Another asset to this course is, you know, it became very popular in the 80s and 90s and 2000s to to build a drivable par four. But there, there's a, more than one at Old Barnwell, you know, that you're not resting on expectation or tradition or assumption about what you can build and what you can't, you know, so there are a number of golf courses where, you know, you, you can take a driver and, and get damn close to the green. If not, if not drive it, one of those holes is the uh, 14th hole, which was a, another thing that uh, was completely fresh to me. And maybe I just haven't seen enough or, but I hadn't seen anything like that. So you're standing on the tee. It's a short par four. All you see is this kind of rampart of, of grass uh, across this chasm of sand, and it's diagonal from right to left. And you just see at up at the green, just the top of the flag stick, and you really can't see any of the fairway. So you're just kind of picking this blind spot across this long ridge toward the green. And if you play it more often than once, like I did, you know, you would know kind of where your lines are and where the ball is going to go once it gets over that crest. But I couldn't, I couldn't think of an analog to that hole. Could you, could you talk about how that hole became, um, how you built that hole? Yeah. So we had originally, um, the 13th was going to be a par three that played to the, to the crest of the, the hill and the fairway, kind of just short of the landing area. And then 14 was going to be um, kind of a similar hole of what it is today, which is a riff on number two at National Golf Links, the Sahara Hole. Um, and that was something that, you know, Brian had had, he had just, you know, he had seen the land and kind of had it worked out in his head of like, okay, if we do X, Y, Z, we throw a bunch of dirt at the green site, like this could work, you know, strategically, just, just like big picture stuff. You know, like the yardages will work, the angles will work, the elevations will work, like, and it won't take that much dirt to do. Um, and then, you know, we were out walking around and we, we, we saw a better green site for the 13th, which made it the par four that it is today. Um, you know, one of the things that was going to be really difficult about the par three we had of the original when it, for 13 was it would just been really difficult sitting high up on that knob. Um, and if we could stretch it out to make it a, you know, I think it's like a 390 or 400 yard par four now, um, stretching it out, introducing that sort of pit on the right that, you know, longer hitters are going to find trouble with, you know, the, the one hang up was, can we keep the 14th as it is and, you know, keep it safe if we push the green as far back as we did. So we had to kind of finagle the tees and finagle the green site, um, but that's, that's kind of how it came about. And then, you know, it was just flipping some dirt from those 
bunkers in the foreground like you saw and and flipping it back into the green site and then we hauled some more dirt in from um that the other dirt might have come from the bunkers on 10 that we had previously discussed those cross bunkers um just shelling those out and bringing that dirt over to 14 green but if you go look at i think i think you guys actually golf digest did a flyover of national golf links yeah. with gill hands um talking mm-hmm. through all the golf holes and if you go back and look like uh the sahara hole to it uh number two um i think you'll see some similarities there and you know it's again it, it, it's a golf hole that's that's really well known but maybe not one that's been tried to you know just not many people have tried to reproduce it over the course of 100 years um and it's a hole that brian and i really like you know yeah oh, i didn't pick up on that at all i've i've played national and was not picking up on number two there which i think again is to like to your credit you go to you know a lot of modern golf courses and you come up to a hole and you're like okay obviously you know they're trying to build a beer it's here or they're trying to build you know a, a certain type of template hole and it's they're not really trying to vary it all that much which it could be a fun golf hole but it's it's not uh it's not particularly creative and i think that's just a great testament to a certain kind of approach where you're internalizing these these classic holes and as you said maybe misremembering them even but but you're you're using that and saying well what what does this concept of this this very established hole look like when i run it through my filter and when you when i put my interpretation on it and that's it's like a that's what great music should be you know you don't aren't just trying to 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 reproduce the 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 blues song that you heard um you know in 1957 you're trying to rewrite it as as john lennon and paul mccartney and seeing what that sounds like through their voice and i think old barnwell is probably full of moments like that where somebody else might have taken those concepts and said and, and made a hole that that looks like another hole and you're taking these concepts and making them look like something that i somebody like me has could not connect the dots on that's kind of cool to hear yeah because i you know i i figured you'd been up there and seen it um and and yeah that's you know that's part of like the inspiration doesn't only come from one place right like brian brian's brain has a ton of other things that he's inspired by that you know i may not be familiar with and i have this set of other things over here that i'm inspired by that you know, when we collaborate, we merge those things together. And then stylistically, you know, um, Gray Carlton and Andre Buchko are, are the two young guys that I mentioned earlier who were, they were helping with a lot of the bunker work, a lot of the feature work. Um, you know, they, they've got their style that they want to impart on it. And then collectively, as we've talked, you know, it's like berms, straight lines, above ground hazards are, are things that we wanted to be motifs throughout the course. And, you know, introducing those as strategy was important to us. And so, you know, that may, that may take something that would otherwise look pretty familiar, but with just a different style to it makes it suddenly unfamiliar, you know? Just one last note on old Barnwell before we kind of move on to other things. You'd mentioned that it was liberating to some degree to not have a a Tom Doak behind you editing you, you know, or and you'd gotten to that point on some of the projects that you and Brian worked on where you might've even started to self edit yourself because you knew what the, what the feedback might be 
uh, on the back end. So this, you had a sense of, of liberation here where you didn't, you didn't have to, to edit yourselves necessarily. You ended up obviously doing a lot of editing, but you didn't start off with that. Was that, it was, was there a purposeful intention for you to try to create something maybe more, uh, dramatic or sharp in, in resolution and, and scale or size than you might've ever tried to do when working on one of Tom's projects? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if it was intentional. Um, I, I think it's like, it's like anybody who's been doing something for a long time and you, you finally get a crack to, you know, be the decision maker. I, I think Brian and I just, we had a lot of ideas that we'd be excited about putting into the ground, but it, but it also has to make sense for that place. Right. I, I think a lot of times, you know, you, you hear it with, music you hear it with art you hear it with um golf design it's like the first project you just want to throw the yeah, kitchen sink exactly. at everything and there's 10 pounds of mm -hmm. shit in a five pound bag you know so you have to have some restraint there as well of okay we yeah we could do the green this way but actually as a set this green works a lot more you know this green would be a lot better off being mellow you know um so there are things like that where it's it's like, yeah, we, you know, I, I think of Brian, Brian's work at Lanark Country Club in Philadelphia that um, I was lucky to be a part of and help out with, you know, I, I think he really, he was given a free swing there to like, let's kind of try to differentiate ourselves in Philly. We're already in a really tough neighborhood with a bunch of good golf. You know, how do we do something different? Um, and, you know, just talking with Brian and some of the ideas he wanted to implement there was, it was really refreshing. And that was a really creative environment to be a part of where, you know, he gave me freedom to, you know, to stylistically be different. And so we saw some of these things like building on previous projects and working together, just getting to know, you know, what both of us, what we think is good golf, what we think would be cool if we got a chance to build it elsewhere on a new course. Um, all that stuff had kind of been brewing just in discussions when you're on the road with somebody 150 days a year, you know, you just have a lot of time to talk golf. But, but like I said, it's that, um, you, you have to balance that with some restraint, like what's right for this site, what's right for this golf course and, and what our client wants, you know, um, but at, at the end of the day, it's like we we weren't afraid to be intentional with our shapes or with our design or like, hey, we moved dirt here. We're not afraid to show you that we moved dirt and intentionally built this feature. Um, and, and you know, that kind of stuff we were. Yeah, we, we were totally OK with that. It, it was just finding that balance. Yeah. And, and I think all your experience gives you that confidence to be able to do that, even though this is your first project, your, you and Brian's first solo project, whereas I I could imagine somebody else with a similar background, but maybe not the confidence might have felt you needed to hew closely to the, you know, that, that minimalist kind of mentality of, of not showing your work and saying, you know, just trying to make everything blend out smoothly. And, um, and, and who knows, maybe that would have been a great approach too. my feeling is that you would have had a, a product that didn't maximize that site and didn't have the the visual and, and strategic appeal and the newness, the freshness of, of the look that old Barnwell does. 
Yeah, I yeah, maybe so. Maybe you're right. I I it take that as a compliment. Yeah, I just, so I appreciate it's not it. really a question. It's just yep. kind of a statement <laughs> that I left hanging there. Um yeah. I'm gonna ask you a, a question that's kind of tried and it's a, like a bad interviewer question, but um I'm going to give it a shot because I think it might might lead to, to some more interesting things. And there are things that, that probably like you've touched on before, but maybe we can circle back to and flesh out a little bit. But quite simply, what motivates you as a designer at this point in your life? What motivates me as a designer? Um, hmm. I, I don't know if, if, if other designers and golf course architects have something that that they want to be known for or left behind or something that they they try to do on on every project i'm sure it's different for for everyone but yeah just for for myself like if is there a motivation in in what i do Uh, you know i could probably boil it down down to something that that i'm always trying to get to at the end of whatever i'm working on there's something there that it may not be it may not show up in a physical sense or in a in a string of sentences, but there's there's a, a mood or or a tone or something that that I want to or or a purpose that I want to try to carry forth in the things that I do. So I'm asking is is have you is there something that is kind of elemental to everything that that you want to do in this business? Yeah, that's um it's, I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing that I had to think about <laughs> that question. Um, but, <laughs> but I, a, I think it gets back to, you know, I'm motivated by opportunities to be creative and to implement ideas. And it's like, I could, I'm sure if you attached a heart rate monitor to me, like for the, for the two hour span of like whomping a bunch of dirt around to loosely get an idea in place. Like those, that's my favorite two hours of the day or of any project, you know? So it's just the opportunity to do that and to keep doing that is really motivating. You know, I, I don't think I'm motivated by like being known for something or, or, you know, like being pigeonholed is something is a worse way to put it. Um, I'm simply, you know, I, I like building golf courses. I like the way the individual place and the piece of land is more inspiring than anything else. So it's like trying to, you know, trying not to impart what I want to do on a piece of land, trying to let that piece of land inform what I should be doing. Um, and, and just, you know, the opportunity to create and be creative. I think it's, I'd be happy if I did that for the rest of my life and was never known for anything or never known as a famous golf architect and just had a life of like building cool stuff and implementing things that people enjoy. I'd be very happy, you know, on your website, dundeegolf.com, you have a, uh, a page called inspiration and it's, it's probably, you know, not, updated maybe this is from a while back but the inspirations there are some photographs of different thing and some of them are like um burial mounds that they appear to be burial mounds or strange geological shapes and um land formations those all seem to be natural inspirations as in like they're they're natural existing or things that have come to exist in nature as opposed to things that exist outside of golf is that important to you to to that naturalness 
bring keeping things looking natural or uh, can you derive inspiration from non-natural things or yeah i you know i honestly i think i'm pretty lucky that i can be inspired by pretty much anything and i honestly i don't believe that that's a talent i i think it's just having an open mind and allowing yourself to be inspired by things that could just be laying around. But if you look at them in a different way than what their purpose is, then you might be able to implement that, you know, or apply it to what you're doing. Um, I, <laughs> I think back on uh, a project we were working on in uh, Brentwood Country Club, Kai Golby and I were out there uh, working for Todd Ecken Road, and this was probably eight years ago. Um, and I, you know, Kai was building the green. I forget what hole. It might have been the eighth hole. Um, and I was working on the bunker, and there was like a, a old, you know, steel pipe that had been twisted out of the ground as we pulled it out of the ground. And I thought it made a cool shape. I was like, you know what? I could make this bunker edge kind of look like that shape. And Kai, in his own way, was like, what are you fucking hot? You know, it's like that's what Kai would say in that moment. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's little things like that, like, just constantly looking around and allowing yourself to be inspired by stupid things like that. And at least trying it, you know, like not being, not being afraid to try an idea or to implement something I think is really important. Um, cause yeah, it may, it may be an awful idea or it may not have been good inspiration in the first place, but you know, it's, it's just dirt and it's just a little bit of diesel fuel and you can always put it back or do something different. So why not try to put the idea in and see? Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm constantly looking around at, you know, I'm inspired by art and maps and architecture, you know, I've got a 19 month old now and we've got one on the way later this month. So all the little, all the little kids toys and these little like, um, yeah, everything just sort of you look at it in a different way when you're in a creative field mm-hmm. like we are, you know. Brentwood, by the way, just as an aside, that's a, that's a really underrated golf course, and it, a very it turned out really cool. There's a lot of really interesting shapes on, out there um, for a pretty flat piece of ground. It's pretty cool. Did that did that shape stay? Yeah. Did did you get to build the bunker and with that edge that you wanted to? It did. Yeah, I think it did stay. Um, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you were to put the pipe next to the bunker edge, if it would look exactly the same. That's not the point, um, right? It's not the point. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, I took a crack at it and whatever it was, it stayed. So yeah, I think it worked out okay. You just mentioned that you're inspired by architecture and things like that. I was going to ask you, ask you that question. I try to, I try and, and, and not very successfully try to, correlate golf course architecture with building and, and structural architecture historically and contemporary contemporaneously and um you know i think there might be some parallels but how much have you looked into that that parallel as a form of you know as, as guidance or inspiration does that work for you um or to that even to that greater point to what degree do you look to you know music or art or poetry to find inspiration and how how would those inspirations manifest themselves potentially in, in something that as interesting or not interesting as pushing sand around. Yeah. One of the things that I, you know, in grad school, I went to grad school for landscape architecture and there, there's a big crossover obviously with, with architecture. Um, one of the things that 
stuck out to me are just like, it's the analysis portion of the programming and the process that I think really connects with golf architecture and landscape architecture. How, how do you get people to move through a space? How do you vary spaces to make people feel differently? How do you play with light and shadow? You know, how do you, I'm interested in like the structural side of it. Like how do you support this giant thing in such a, you know, tight footprint? Um, so things like that are really important when also, you know, we're dealing with space as well. So, you know, I, I remember at Bel Air, one of the things um, Tom commented on was just how space varied so much. You know, you, you start out at one T up high and it's wide open. And by the time you get to three T you're in the most intimate, one of the most intimate spaces on the property. Um, and then you get spit back out after the tunnel on five and you're in this big space again. And that made me think a lot about how architects use space, how they, or how, you know, landscape architects design parks, um, playing with space, playing with, uh, psychology and how people feel when, when they're in those kinds of spaces. Um, you know, with, with art, it's, to me, I, I think of art a lot more and connect it to golf just as far as like formal qualities, like just texture, focal points, composition, things like that. Um, you know, whether it's when you reduce art down to the, the, the formal qualities, you can, you can easily more easily compare like abstract art to impressionists to realists, you know? Um, and so it, it helps you then like, okay, we're, I feel like I've always had a good eye as far as, you know, like compositionally how a golf hole looks. It's like, it's not that hard to make something look good. Mm -hmm. um, but then knowing those rules, it's a lot easier to break the rules and make something purposefully look off balanced or make something, you know, look easier than it is or harder than it is. If that's what we want to do to the golfer. Um, so all that stuff sort of plays into, or, or connects with how I think about golf, um, in a way. Yeah. When I think of these movements, these different art forms, I see what you're saying. And I definitely, I, I would agree that, that art lends itself most readily to, uh, to translating into looking at a golf course or even building a golf course. Um, I'm always interested in, in seeing if there's like a, a parallel to, music or or movies or something and it wouldn't it wouldn't be a visual thing necessarily but it would be something that you feel like like jazz you would you know you'd start off with early in the round with some simple beats and and then you you build on that and and the holds take a slightly different form but you're still playing off these melodies and then you get to like this instrumental at some point or this this improv improvisation and um and and nobody would i don't think would ever pick up on that but uh i'd be curious to know if 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 that inter would enter your mind or or if you think that that could be accomplished that and i, I mentioned this to you I, I think old barnwell kind of does that and you just talked about it a few minutes ago is by taking themes like these these cops and these these different berms and and building things above the ground and below the ground and playing around with those and, and kind of carrying these themes in in different formats throughout the golf course to kind of create this great musical structure but i, I think it's just interesting that you can take that concept of of parallels to other art forms and and potentially carry those into golf design but i don't you know it's i don't know how many 
people really think of golf design like that. Obviously you do. No, that's, yeah. And music's a huge, um, just listening to music and being inspired by music is a huge part of it. I think a lot of people who are in the golf architecture world, like that's a huge part of their inspiration. Cause just cause everybody's got earbuds in now, you know, or you're listening to the radio or you've got a 30 minute drive to work. So you're listening to music or podcasts. Um, one of the things during COVID I was trying to find, God, I wish I could remember the university, but they were working on visualizing, um, classical, you know, synthesis symphonies or, um, uh, orchestras mm -hmm. and finding those, like finding the high points and the low points or, you know, when it was really ramped up versus when it was soft. And I was trying to sniff around if there were any consistencies or common themes between the best ones. Like I don't know classical music, you know, I, I went through a phase of listening to some, but I, I, I can't tell you any more than the average Joe, you know, but I, I was wondering if there was a parallel with that or if you could riff off some of the best compositions and study how they, they rose and fall and created those moments of tension and those moments of softness. And if you could apply that to how you want to route a golf yeah. course, I think that's where it would apply most. Um, you know, it's like, Hey, this is, you, the worry is you don't want to get into a format, right? You don't want to be formulaic in how you approach that routing. But if you see something that works and it's like, Hey, people respond well to like, if you get real high and have a lot of tension in the first third, you know, and then you bring it back again and like in the last, you know, 10% of the symphony, like that actually works really well. And people in human brain responds well to that. Like that's the kind of stuff that I was trying to get at, but I, I never went deep enough down the rabbit hole to see, but I'd be curious how those two relate similar to like, you know, artists are doing it every day when they do a live concert of what, how are you setting up your, what's your set list? You know, what's your, your song list going to be? How are you, how are you trying to maximize your three hours up on stage to give the crowd the best experience uh, possible? Yeah. You know, um, where do you, where do you choose to play your, your two or three hits? Where do you choose to play your slow songs? Things like that. You know, and I, <laughs> it's sort of a side tangent, but, uh, I think like six or seven years ago, I reached out to the, there's one guy who designs like all the bobsled tracks for the Olympics and was just like, I sent a couple emails back and forth with him of like, how are you designing where to have the big turns and the, and the tight turns and the long straightaways. And, you know, their, their job is much more like safety is a huge component geometry and like, you know, a turn has to be X degrees or X angle. It's, it's almost more like road right. construction and things like that. Um, but it was just interesting to hear some feedback. And the on, people that the people that experience that are not the viewers; they're the only the the riders in the you know the sled. And most people don't get to do that. But it is an interesting, really, concept to get in the mind of somebody else who has to. Th th I can see what you're saying. There must be uh, a psychological component along with the safety and engineering. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, I've reached out to like skate park design, like skate park designers before and even professional skateboarders of 
you know, guys who do freestyle on the street, like, well, how are you, you're deciding in what sequence you want to make these jumps. Like, how are you deciding that? How are you deciding that you want to jump up on this rail and then jump off it and then down onto this other thing? Is it just like, you know, I don't, I don't know if those guys put much thought into it from a routing perspective, like a golf architect would, but they're doing that. Like they're subconsciously doing that. So it's like trying to, trying to get that information out and like, how do they, you know, how do they see the world that they're trying to route their skateboard through? And can that inform like, how do we route golf courses? You know, I, I really, I think having those kinds of conversations or trying to like, trying to, identify fields that tackle similar problems as golf architects, but there it's a totally different medium. You know, those are conversations I want to have more of as I, you know, as I go on in, in my career. Yeah, no doubt. I can see that, you know, I think most good golf course architects do strive for that, you know, finding that, that rhythm in the land where you want to like build up tension, let it release, build it up, let it release. And then how do you, how do you land it? I think most people have thought about that, but to actually take something of that you can glean from somebody else from a vastly different field and apply it. And again, it would be, it would not be something that any player golfer would know that you did or that, that informed your thinking of a routing or, or the overall design of a golf course, unless you decided to name your, you know, publicize it or something, you know, but, but it would be in intrinsic to the experience of that playing, playing that golf course. I find that, I find that very interesting. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think the, the one thing for me would be, you know, I had an art professor who told me like, there's only two or three new ideas floating around the entire world at one time. Like everything's derivative of something else. But if what I'm building is derivative of something in another field, then I, I hope and my thinking is that that could maybe give the golf a little bit of a fresh take and a fresh look, you know? Um, and I, I haven't done that yet to this point. I'm hoping I get the opportunity to try it. And if nothing else, just get the opportunity to talk to some people and see how people in different fields think and try to solve creative problems, you know, cause ultimately that's all, that's all golf design is, is creative problem solving and water management, you know? It's pretty boring if you just <laughs> boil it down to that. It's much more fun to talk about it like this. <laughs> That's another reason that I, I try to draw analogies with with art or music or film or something. And it's not it's not necessarily transposing one onto the other, but but I mean, what naturally interests me in that, since I don't build golf courses, this is what motivates me, is that is the the progression of art and how it moves through time. And what I always find interesting about art and these other things, comparing it to architecture, is, is how how movements arise and formulate and then fade away as something new comes along. And you get that in golf design a little bit. I mean, it happens in, in painting constantly throughout history, you know, and, and we're almost to this you know, post painting period now, but you know, you could just go, go through the centuries and, and look at how art on canvas evolved and then something uh, in, in the culture or, or, or a, a perspective or techniques or materials changes. And then a new form arises. And I'm always looking for that in, in golf design is what, what is slightly breaking the mold or shifting the perspective because 95% of, of, 
golf built in any era is derivative of of what just came before it and some of it literally derivative and some of it like what we've been in the last you know decade or more is is derivative of something that existed a hundred years ago you know with 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 template holds or you know trying to recreate the 1920s and what is it what's happening now and and this conversation that we're having is really fascinating to me because this is i think how it happens you know you you seek outside inspiration and, and it may not be something dramatic you can't just be successful going out and building the things that desmond muirhead was building in the 70s and 80s but you can do elements of that 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 tweak things and just kind of nudge golf architecture this very kind of slow moving ship in a certain direction you know and that's kind of ties back to my question earlier about how you know were you and brian you know trying to push the envelope in 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 some way and and is that envelope is that in in your shaping or you know to what degree do you let me i'll just ask you this uh since i'm just kind of rambling here when you're conceiving of holes and and building things to what degree do you put emphasis in addition to what you just said in what to what degree do you put emphasis on really established fundamental golf principles versus uh, ignoring them and pushing the envelope and maybe in a way that might make some people uncomfortable where does that balance fall for you um trying to think during the project you know it's it's hard i i feel like design build the way we work allows you to think more like that in the moment but you also hope that before the shovels hit the ground you've had some of those big picture thoughts as well you know it'd be it'd be like trying to think of the mechanics of your golf swing while swinging a golf club you know it just sometimes that just doesn't work when you're thinking too much that way or it's like like football players you know you can't you can't be thinking your technique while the play is happening because then you just end up being slower. So you, you have to balance that a little bit and like the execution side when we're actually shaping stuff and be willing to think of, of those thoughts and have those kind of have the bigger picture in your head. And that's something that's really, you know, it's like I get back to the benefit of, you know, Gray and Andre and having those young guys being productive and taking direction because that freed up time for Brian and me to think about some of those big picture things that that you're talking about. And maybe, you know, a case by case decision of, I don't, I don't know if we ever had the direct conversation of like, we want to push the envelope here. Um, But as you're building holes, you know, kind of the sequencing of like, okay, 10 and 11 are sort of like this. So maybe on 12, we could do, you know, we could crank it up a little bit. And that gave us time to, to wrestle with those dilemmas a little bit more. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know if that answers your question or not. That's kind of the, that that's the way I'm thinking of it though. If there's there, I understand if you, you've got a follow-up question, if you need to ask. Well, how, how cognizant are you of what golfers want or think they want what golfers you you mean in terms of like like the present, golf shot and the aesthetics or what they're willing like to the ac- what they're willing to accept or what what what's what some people mm. might consider good golf versus mm. something that that cuz i think that at old barn well just to keep using this 
I think there were there was green contours, for instance, that that went right up to the edge of of being too extreme. But I don't think they are as long as they, you know, they're not running at twelve on the stint meter. Um, but they're but they're very bold, aggressive shapes with you know like like the seventh green is massive and it's got you know it it drops down in the back half you know two or three feet to this lower level and and 11's the same it's a side-by-side bifurcation of this really high side looks like the like the 14th at augusta national turned sideways you know so so obviously like you know you're you're being creative with those and and you're you're being somewhat aggressive in in your shaping but you know you don't want to no architect wants to be controversial either. I don't think some, maybe some do, but I mean, I wouldn't think that you wanted to be controversial. So how cognizant are you of, of what you think golfers want? And do you think that you can guide certain players into your way of thinking, even when you're building things that they might not have seen before? Okay. Yep. Um, you know, one of the things with building bold greens and, and, I'll just I'll I'll say I think Brian is the best greens builder on the planet here, Eric Iverson. You know, um, I just think they've he's built hundred. They both built hundreds of greens, some of the wildest greens that Tom is known for, and some of the the gentlest greens that Tom is known for. So, you know, a knowing that Brian does Brian builds greens at a really high level and has built a lot of them. And I'm, you know, I like to think I'm not a slouch, but I just don't have the experience that he has. Um, and one of the things that's that's both really important to us is if you're going to build a wild green, there has to be, you can, there has to be counter slope. There has to be recoveries from, you know, two or three sides. There's got to be a safe place to miss. And there's typically on wild greens, one place where you can't miss or one place for each pin that you can't miss, you know? So the other, the other side of that is 18 of those. We know people can't tolerate, like I've played golf courses where too many of the greens are tricked up and it's just, you know, it's a slog. If you've got a 40 foot, a 40 foot putt on every one of those greens. Um, and so one of the things that's like, you talk about taking inspiration. I, I think it was Walter Travis who laid out what his ideal like greens would be on a golf course. Um, you know, it's like five or six with heavy internal contour, two or three that just lay on the ground, two or three that fall front to back, like one or two that are of the punch bowl variety. Um, and so thinking in terms of like knowing in the back of our head, like, Hey, if we, you know, if we end up with eight or nine wild greens, like that's probably going to be too much. You know, we need to be, if you're in the four to six range, like that's, what's kind of stomachable for people. And Hey, you know, maybe, maybe old Barnwell has five, maybe old Barnwell has seven. It depends on what you consider a wild green, but we know we're kind of like, as a set, we're comfortable with what's laying on the ground. What's a punch bowl. What's kind of wild. And then, specifically how those greens function and making sure that, you know, on like 13 at old Barnwell, there's a big Ridge in the middle. And it's like, if you're back left putting to a front, right pin, are you able to stay on the green? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, or are you creating something that everybody's going to putt off of? So when it gets down to those little details of, 
okay, if I, you know, if I'm back here, can I get to this pin? If I'm over here, can I get to this pin? Am I okay if somebody's dead from, you know, the front right? Like, are, and just being able to justify that, you know, being a, being able to justify that to Nick when we go to him and being able to defend that if, if it gets criticism or just say, yep, we know that, we know that that pin could be unfair from over here, but we were willing to live with that because we only did it once, you know? And yeah, so those are the, those are the kinds of things that we're thinking of as we're building greens and um, thinking of the recovery shots, you know, one building greens with Tom, one, one of the cool things he does, he, the first thing he does is kind of walk around the green 360 degrees and he looks at recovery shots first. He doesn't look at putts, you know, he's looking at, okay, most people are going to miss the green. So what's it going to be like for them trying to get to all these pins? So to, so on some some degree, and I think this is a smart approach, I'm, I'm sure it's no different for, from other architects, is you do have to consider the people that are playing the golf course. And you, do, and you have to be careful about leading them in places they may not be ready to go, at least to some degree. It sounds like that's a seems to be a, a logical way to approach it. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, you've, you know, you, you, you need to be, if, if you're going to, if you're willing to put grass on it, you need to be able to def- defend it and be confident in it. You know, if you're, if you're not confident in what you're built and you're grassing it, like th- there's a disconnect there that's, that's not good. So I don't, you know, we don't, we don't grass anything that we're not like, willing to put our stamp on and say, yep, we did this. We did this for a reason. We know that if you end up um, short left on 12 to a front left pin, like you're probably going to come off the golf course complaining, but we're also able to say like, we thought about that. We gave you 30 yards over here to the right and 30 yards short of the green where you could miss. And, and, you know, it's like next time you play, now you're going to know I have to miss over here to that pin. Um, And hopefully I, you know, I think at a, at a, at a private course or a place where people are playing every day and they're playing the same course, you can, you can have things like blind bunkers, like the bunkers on 10, you you can have things that are trickier pins because people get to know the course a lot better. Um, you're obviously designing a little differently when it's a resort and people have, they're playing it once or twice and they're going home. When you so when you go travel around and you see other golf courses, what are you looking for and what what turns you on? Oh, just you know things I haven't seen before or things that, you know, I look for cleverness. Um, obviously, I I love seeing a a beautiful green or I love seeing a well composed golf hole or a strategic golf hole, but a lot of times it's like individual features or you know, a way that they did the routing. Um, and sometimes that's hard to tell, you know, you don't know the limitations of what they're working with. You don't know what the land is doing if it's heavily treed, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking for, yeah, things I haven't seen before quirk cleverness. Um, you know, just even just little tricky shots around the green. It's like, Oh, that I was wondering what that little bump was for, but it's, it's a counter slope for this pin right here. Yeah, just kind of storing those away in 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 a file folder. If like you know, if you ever get a chance to use something like that when you're building a green, it's like, oh yeah, there I could just put a counter slope here to make this 
kind of nutty pin work and then the whole green works and we're good. I think you and I probably are turned on with golf by the same types of things. Those are the things that interest, interest me too. Are you able to switch off your, your designer mind when you go see other places or are you looking at, at drainage and, and, you know, slopes and shaping and tie-ins and all that kind of thing? Uh, I think I've got a good balance. You know, I've, my buddies who I play golf with back home in Omaha, it's like they're cracking Coors lights at nine in the morning and we're in a cart and they're playing music. And, you know, it's not the kind of golf that I typically play, but I'll go right along with them. And, you know, I'm still looking at things on their golf course or things that I see. And, um, but I'm also, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the annoying friend who would be pointing all that out on every hole either. Um, you know, I, I, I think a good golf course, it ultimately reveals itself during a match. You know, if a golf course is good, then you're having fun while you're playing. Maybe the, you know, maybe the match is tight on 15 and it like the, the golf means something, you know? And so there's a component of that, of I'm willing to let the golf course reveal itself and just like gauge what kind of feeling I have about it based on how fun everyone's having, um, you know, things like that. I, I think it's important to, to at least be aware of that. It, it's not the whole picture, obviously, but I, I do think it's important, um, how people feel while they're playing the golf course. And if the golf is good, you know, like the, the golf people are playing is good, I should say. Yeah. I, it seems that, a lot of designers have a hard time genuinely complimenting the work of their peers. And maybe, maybe I'm saying that a little too forcefully or, or too black and white, but my experience is that, that, you know, they, they'd rather just not say anything nice than, than say anything or, or not say anything at all than say anything nice. And, and when they see their contemporaries work, they, they kind of subconsciously or quietly pick at it and there's not a lot of genuine praise flowing back and forth so you're saying that you can that what you just said wasn't exactly saying that you can switch off your 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 brain or that you can immerse yourself in in somebody else's design because you're talking about enjoying the golf course because other people are enjoying it which is something a little bit different yeah i I don't disagree with you either I, i do think um golf architecture is a very, or or golf architects can be, um, sort of insular maybe. And, and like giving, you know, giving too much praise to somebody who I may be competing with for a master plan or for a new site. Like, I, I think it was a lot more contentious back before I was in the industry. Um, when there were 250 jobs going every year, um, as odd as that is to say, but I, I do think, you know, the, the people I know, uh, you know, I'm general, I'm, I'm genuinely rooting for them to do well and to get work. Um, and I don't know everybody, but you know, that's one of those things that's, it's just, I'm probably guilty of it myself of like, even though I might be internally praising them or texting them, you know, m- maybe that's good enough. Maybe it's like, I don't need to showcase it on social media or something of like, Hey, great job, Riley and Keith, you know, like, 
but like texting them congratulations or calling them and saying congratulations, I think that stuff's important. And I do think it, it probably happens a little more often than what's publicly out there. Um, but also, you know, sometimes it's like, even if it's somebody you don't like and it's good golf, like you got to tip your cap to good golf architecture. Um, Cause yeah, it's, you know, you don't, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to, to make it personal. You know what I mean? Yeah. You certainly would want to be strategic about how you let that out. If at all, um, I, I see it, I sense it more kind of in the, in the renovation restoration remodel world, you know, where jobs where you have, you could have in the course of a, of a generation, three or four different people working on the same golf course. And then they're all redoing each other's work. And, and you get a lot of that, uh, underhanded or, or quieter, or just, you know, sometimes it's just flat out, you know, they, they fuck that up. <laughs> you know, you, right. you hear that again. Um, it's just, an, it's interesting to, to see how architects perceive of, of others work. Some people like Bill and Ben, I, I've never come across a single person that had anything bad to say about, obviously them, you can't say anything bad about them as people, but, but either their golf courses, they're just universal respect, but otherwise there's just, there's a lot of like behind the scenes sniping that, that, that goes on. Yeah. And I don't, I'm trying to think of like a, a field where that's done really well. You know, I, um, I don't know, like, football coaches universally praise each other in public. Yeah. Um, but behind the scenes, it's probably well, not, not always. They don't always, not always, <laughs> not always but for 99% of the time, you know? Um, but then, yeah, I'm, I don't know if you could think of somewhere off the top of your head where it's like, it's a genuine, you're genuine, happy, you're genuinely happy. Yeah. For, I don't know. It's hard to know if it's genuine or not. I don't know if you listen to that that podcast, Smartless. It's you know one of the biggest podcasts in the world. But when when Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes have other actors and guests on, they're just effusive in their praise of of these other people and their and their work. And it seems like they mean it. But you know, are they are they really being honest? Do they do they really like the the work of their guests that much? Who knows? Yeah, and I need to do you know I need to be better about that. Um, Cause I, I, you know, when I was going to undergrad school in Montana, my roommate, my roommate, Kyle, just like one day made it a point. He's like, man, somebody gave me a compliment at the bar last night and it felt so good. Like, like I'm going to make it a point to, if I am thinking something nice about somebody, I'm going to say it. And damn, I don't do a good enough job of that, you know, but it does like, it just makes your day to get a compliment, you know? Um, for somebody to appreciate, like, especially if you know it's unsolicited appreciation yeah. of something you did is just a great feeling. Um, it is. So yeah, I, I want to challenge myself to be better about that yeah. for sure. But it does have to come from a place of honesty too. Yeah. If I'm not thinking it, no, I'll just trash them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go have a beer and talk shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll wrap this up here pretty soon, Blake, but, um, you know, you've mentioned a few times, uh, you're you have a, a master's in landscape architecture from Georgia. Um, your, your thesis paper was on golf course closings. It was titled 
bankrupt golf courses, uh, historical analysis and strategies for repurposing. I came across this a few years ago as I was you know, researching some other things. And I just I bookmarked it and have come back to it a few times. And I think it's interesting. It reads, first of all, it's a Obviously, it's a scholastic piece of work, and it's very detailed and, and comprehensive, and it's it's packed with data, and it, and it reads at once, you know, prescient of what golf what was happening in golf in 2013 uh, when rounds were declining and the, the industry was still suffering from massive overbuilding in the 1990s when the the National Golf Foundation, you know, tragically issued this report that. Golf needed to build a golf course a day for 10 years to meet the projected baby boomer demand, which turned out to be just fatally flawed. Uh, So course closings were happening in in 2013. It also reads as a relic of of that time when, when that was the environment that golf was in. We're in a completely different time period now post COVID 2020 when when golf is booming, rounds are up, participation is are at all time highs and we're getting uh, kind of this mini boom in golf construction that's happening. Um, and, and as your as this uh, paper points out, a, a lot of the courses that were built in the 90s that contributed to this overbuilt state of that, that really crippled golf and, and drove a lot of actually um, deserving courses out of business because they couldn't compete with these other developments were master planned communities. And I'm starting to see a little bit of resurgence of the master plan community come back now, which disappeared for probably 15 years uh, leading up to the 2008 financial crisis when a lot of projects that were on the boards and these these housing developments well, went bankrupt and, and never got off the ground. I'm starting to see uh, evidence that more of this is coming back, particularly in the sunshine uh, states. Um, and I'm wondering, some of these jobs are going to come open and they're not all going to go to, you know, the, the established people, they're going to go to you and, and, and your peers. Are there lessons that, that we need to keep fresh in our mind from that period in time when it comes regarding to, to some of these new golf course things? D- d- is it incumbent upon your generation and your peers to apply some sort of sense of, of ethics to golf design and the jobs you take going forward, you know, balancing these, these needs, as you point out in your paper, the, the economic, environmental and social confluence of golf and keep those in mind in ways that historically master plan communities didn't take into consideration. Yeah. I, I didn't know that that was, um, being such a resurgence or an uptick. Um, you know, I know there's a lot more golf courses being built and it makes sense that developers wouldn't learn from their previous mistakes. Um, the, the one thing that, you know, the one thing that was crushing to some of those golf courses was some of the fine print language of once the community was built or once the golf course was built and grasped, then the HOA took over ownership of the golf course or, you know, the funding for maintenance and for upkeep drastically reduced after a certain amount of years. So, you know, those are things when I'm, I'm sure developers who are modeling these communities, that takes a huge, that that'll gives that much more profit, right? If they don't have to support this golf course um, once the homes are built. And so that's something that's like reading the fine print and figuring out how they plan to operate the golf course after everything's done and who takes ownership or assumes ownership or liability for it. Um, the other thing is, 
is how are they working with architects? You know, um, is the architect getting the first crack at the best land or is the architect going to be the one that's left with the dregs? And, you know, these big land planning communities, they have guys on staff who are able to route golf courses and, you know, it's like, okay, our, our in-house guy was able to get an 18 hole routing here. And that gives us, you know, this prime real estate so we can get X amount more out of every lot. And those are the ones that I think a, the golf doesn't turn out nearly as bad because you get golf that's down in these valleys and homes up high on either side. Um, so those are the ones that, you know, it's like Bill and Ben or Tom or Gil aren't going to be stuck with projects like that, but, you know, somebody like me or some of my peers may be inclined to think that's a good opportunity because you're getting your name on a project yourself, but like, but is it actually a good opportunity? Do you have the creative freedom that you think you're going to have? You know, those are all things that I think just need to be thought about before blindly saying yes, or thinking that this is a great opportunity. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't want to paint developers poorly, maybe they have learned from their mistakes and they're restructuring these things in a way that, you know, is more like Yeaman's Hall of, hey, we're going to do some houses around the perimeter. They're going to be very set back. You know, it's going to be 40 of them that pay for the entire project and the golf gets the first crack at the best land. Um, you know, Yeaman's figured it out a hundred years ago. Can, can we get back to something like that if there's going to be a housing component to the golf? Um, you know, that's, those are the things that I'd kind of be curious about if, if, if that's what's happening with these projects. Um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. You bring up Yamans. I, I recently saw their original plans and there was uh, going to be 36 holes and the second core and the, the Yamans that exists now is, is not what was laid out originally by the land developed. There was going to be 36 holes, and about 18 of them were going to be single fairway strung through corridors of houses. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Brian's told me, like, I, I always knew there were plans for 36 um, and plans for more houses. You know, I, like Augusta had plans for That's houses. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so some sometimes these old courses, like, it, it's cool to think that they were, they were doing some of the same, you know, those developers were doing some of the same things that developers are doing a hundred years later. Like the model hasn't really changed, you know, no, I mean, or some of the same the more tactics homes you can used. sell, the more money you make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just a slippery slope and it's like, God, if, 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 if making money is pretty high up there in the component of building a golf course, I don't, you know, that's where, that's where I think you just really need to do your homework on, everybody needs to do their homework, whether you're buying a home in that development, whether you're thinking of taking on the role as the golf architect. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things about the great things about Nick, our client at old Barnwell is he's, he's very aware that, um, golf development is not a wise decision. If you're looking to get a strong return on your investment, uh, <laughs> at least in the short, at least in the short term. Right. Um, he's hoping that it becomes, something to pass on to his kids and or his grandkids. You know what I mean? I think that that's kind of the way you have to approach it. If you're looking to get into golf development, it's, it's, it's a generational asset. It's not a, it, it's hard to make it a quick five to 10 year return on your investment. For sure. And I don't mean to impugn 
any particular golf development that's under consideration or in planning or, or being built right now, I do think that there is a way you can do a development with golf and housing that's intelligent and uh, economically viable and, and perhaps even environmentally sustainable. But just given demographic trends and you know the the impulse of money and the impulse of developers, it it it, it could manifest itself into a situation where instead of building really smart communities, we're building really dumb communities like they did in the nineties where they're just stamping out these horrible golf courses surrounded by homes. Um, I'm sure we'll see some of that, but I don't, we're not there yet, but (laughs) I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be too overly optimistic. That's just my nature. But just to come back to your, the paper that you wrote, you did three case studies of particular golf courses that, um, and the the point of is is how can we repurpose this land? Is are they better off these failing courses to be uh, continuous golf courses or redeveloped as something else? Long Shadow, which is in Madison, Georgia, just east of Atlanta, uh, about forty minutes, was one of your case studies. Uh, it was designed by um, Mike Young, uh, a Georgia-based architect who who we both know, um, and it just it kind of tickled me when I came across that section. Because I loved that golf course, uh, Long Shadow. It it's since went out of business. You left off the paper saying it's it's going to reopen later than in that year, twenty thirteen. And I, mm-hmm. if it did reopen, it reopened for a short time and, um, and and didn't make it. I don't know what's out there now, but that, I just wanted to use the opportunity to um, praise that golf course and how fun that was, and to say hello to Mike Young and and to just note that you'd mentioned it in in this paper. Yeah, no, Mike was great during that whole thesis process. Um, I, I had multiple conversations with him and, you know, my paper, it likely comes off as any idealistic college students paper would. And Mike was one of the people that was quick to bring me back down to earth on how things actually work. Um, in the real world, he's, he's really good at that. And he's, you know, he owns and operates, um, the the fields now out in uh out in western georgia Mm -hmm. uh lagrange yeah in lagrange yep and so he you know he has experience with it and he's he's one of the ones who's he's always said like well it's the third or fourth owner who buys the golf course for pennies on the dollar that the one that you know they're the ones that actually make the money off of it um and it's you know it's it's the same thing it's like maybe long shadow somebody will decide to resurrect that now and it's like you know, there, there's a good golf course sitting there. Like you said, it's just, can you make it viable? Um, and that's, you know, one of the things I wish I would have hammered home more is like what you talked about of all these golf courses in the suburbs got built or in the exurbs got built and it freed up space in the urban core that that green space could then be demolish because new green space was getting built out of the city. I think that was a scary cycle for a while. And we lost a lot of these, you know, little nine hole golf courses that were kind of puttering along. And that was just the final twist of the knife that killed them. And those are the things that we need to strive to protect now. And, you know, I know like Michael Kaiser is, uh, he kind of resurrected or rejuvenated that, um, that nine hole course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Those, I I think those projects, as much as developers can try to attach something like that to a project that they're working on, it's like, 
let's try to protect the little nine hole course that's in the urban core that a lot of people get enjoyment out of and get use out of. And these, some of these developers are brilliant at like marketing, figuring out how to make a little extra revenue through pro shop or sales or, you know, just operationally, how do you get it to function more efficiently? Like lend some of that expertise to these places that need it, that are in the urban core so that we can preserve that green space and, and keep golf accessible. That's the, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. At least now there's the market for golf, uh, that there wasn't five years ago. You know, there's a growing market. You could, I could see places like these little nine hole courses you're talking about with the right in, in strategic investment, actually turning a corner and, and having maybe the resources to, to upgrade their, their turf and irrigation. Um, so, so I think the market's there. We just need probably some more examples of how it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've traveled around a lot, Blake. You've you've seen a lot of golf courses. What's what's the best modern golf course you've seen that you were not involved in building? Best modern golf course I've seen, like lately or just ever? Ever. Your favorite? Oh, uh, probably Sandhills. It's hard. Like that's such an easy, such it's an easy, easy question. Layup, right? It's an easy if you, question. If you want to take the if you want to take the chip shot, go ahead. And I'm a Nebraska, yeah, I'm a Nebraska homer. It's like, that, yeah, that was such an easy question. Um, no, it's just it, everything about it. And it, it gets back to what you talked about with um, with history and with art. And, you know, like appreciating great art, if you don't understand history, it's harder to appreciate why Giotto in the 14th century is maybe the greatest painter of all time because what was before him was shit. And then he just totally changed the game. And, and similarly, like impressionists, you know, what, why that's so important is because there was nothing else like it before. And, and that's the same, that's the same reason why Sandhills is just so good is a, the golf course could stand alone in a vacuum of history, but when you take the context of history into it and realize that what they were doing was unprecedented, it just, it cements it as the greatest modern course, you yeah. know? Yeah. You have to, especially, I, I, I have compared it in the past to like, like the emergence of Nirvana in the early nineties. And if you just look at Nirvana's music, it, it may not be your cup of tea and you might not find anything special about it. Although I think it's, pretty good but if you look at the music that it came out of and what else was happening at that time with with hair metal and and weird synthetic pop and you know synthesizers and uh early hip-hop and all of a sudden you know everything seemed like very staged and 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 poser-esque and then you have this raw music that just seems to come out of out of nowhere and, and, and just made everything else look ridiculous immediately and Sand Hills was kind of like that. If you look at the golf that had been developed over the previous decade, this was so authentic and so real. And everything, it just kind of made, highlighted the artificiality of almost everything that, that was going on at the time. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think maybe music critics are better about this. The style of music isn't my cup of tea, but the, the reverence and appreciation for what that band is doing, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of music critics that don't like grunge music, but still appreciate what Nirvana did. Um, like you said, just 
yeah, the the um, the impact that they had. What is a course that you did work on that you were involved in building that you would most want to go play right now? I would most want to go play right now. Um, I the. The cheesy answer would be old Barnwell, but I think the better answer would be, you know, I spent a couple stints at uh, Tom's course, the National, down in the Mornington Peninsula. Um, it's it's uh, the national, the Gunamata course at the mm-hmm. National. Um, just just for a, a cheeky little trip to Australia, I think that would probably be the one. It's a little too cold to go to St. Patrick's in Ireland right now. I don't think I would want to do that. Um, Bel Air is always nice. That'd be good. Or Winter Park 9, you know? Go see how Keith and Riley's work is holding up and have a quick little nine-hole uh, easy walk. Opportunity is the greatest gift an artist can get. Nick Schreiber the founder of Old Barnwell, has given Blake Conant and Brian Schneider a tremendously versatile and attractive piece of land and the opportunity to build the best golf course they could with few limitations. Seizing the opportunity, these two designers have created a golf course that will stand out for its creative shaping, vast playability, and enticing tee to green strategies. As Blake explained, Buried within the corporal body of each hole is an intriguing blend of creative DNA that can be traced back to holes the architects have seen and worked on, the natural landforms, and inspirations that might have emanated from music, found objects, and other pieces of art. In addition to the work Conan has done for Doak, Schneider, and other architects like Gil Hans and Todd Eckenrode, Old Barnwell should signal to developers and clubs that exceptional architecture is not limited to the small coterie of current designers at the top of the profession. In fact, It's one of a number of new courses that signal the arrival of the next wave of lead architects. Just 25 miles away, for instance, at the tree farm, Zach Blair chose Kai Golby, someone who Conan has also worked closely with, to lead the design. Though Tom Doak laid out the routing, it was Golby, Blair, and their shapers who've brought the details of that course to life. Rob Collins and Tad King, designers of Sweetens Cove and Landman in Nebraska, are continuing to get important new projects. So are Kyle Franz, Tyler Ray, and Jimmy Craig, a longtime shaper for Bill Kaur and Ben Crenshaw. It's an exciting time of turnover in golf design, and Conan and Schneider have proven, with Old Barnwell, that they belong at the vanguard of the new movement. So, thanks to Blake for joining me in this fascinating discussion. Please subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review and some comments when you're there. Past episodes are available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at feedtheball.com including talks with many of the names mentioned in the podcast today. When you're doing your laundry, consider washing your clothes in cold water. There's no downside. Your clothes will be just as clean, but you'll do a small part towards supporting sustainability and relieving a little pressure on our stressed out resources. You'll save on your energy bill as well. That's it. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to Blake for joining me. Thank you to the Sundogs for the intro music. And until we get a chance to do this all again, adios. Adios.